Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello and welcome to episode 823 with Heidi Gardner. Heidi has got some pro tips on how you can collaborate all the more effectively and funly. So you'll learn one, how to stop overcommitment and overcollaboration. Two, how diversity makes for better collaborations. And three, how to overcome common barriers to collaboration. So if you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, or the links to items we've referenced, please pay us a visit over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP823 and check out some of our other goodies like transcripts and every episode tagged by topic and competency covered, email summaries, and more at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now, here is Heidi's story. Heidi K. Gardner, PhD, is a distinguished fellow at Harvard Law School and was previously a professor at Harvard Business School and a consultant at McKinsey & Company. Named by Thinkers50 as a next-generation business guru, Dr. Gardner is a sought-after advisor, keynote speaker, and facilitator for organizations across a wide range of industries globally. She is the co-founder of the research and advisory firm Gardner & Co. and the author alongside Ivan A. Matviak of Smarter Collaboration. Big thanks to Heidi for sharing her wisdom with us and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here is Heidi. Heidi, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Thank you so much. Well, I'm so excited to dig into your wisdom when it comes to collaboration and doing it smarter and better. But first, I want to hear, you got to experience a little bit of an inside view of an interesting slice of history. You worked with the German Ministry of Education during the post-reunification time, helping reform their English curriculum. Any interesting stories from that era? So this goes way back. It was the year 1995, I believe, and I was a Fulbright fellow living in a town, a city called Dessau, Germany, which was basically smack in the center of what had been the DDR. And at that point, it was a pretty rough time to be living in the former East Germany in the sense that a lot of young people had cleared out. They had moved to West Germany in order to seek better economic opportunities, better job prospects. And I was there working inside the education system. I was teaching in the gymnasium, which are the high schools, and teaching in some of the technical programs and things. And I was also doing a lot of teacher training and education curriculum reform. And it was a fascinating time to be there and experience this sort of change. What I realized at the time is that because of people's relative isolation, behind the Iron Curtain, there were so many things that they hadn't been exposed to 
intellectually, culturally, that I had taken for granted. And I saw that as a real eye-opener for me. I mean, I had known that, of course, you know, growing up in, in the States in the 70s and 80s, but to experience it firsthand and to be with people explaining things that were very basic and very run-of-the-mill to me, which were fascinating to individuals who hadn't experienced them previously. For example, the idea that everyone in my family had their own car. I mean, it was, Mm -hmm. you know, it was an incredible eye-opener to them that that was actually pretty normal where I came from. And, you know, the idea that we would have bananas day in, day out, that was kind of the cheap food. I mean, things like that, that I learned to appreciate more by living in that kind of environment. That's beautiful. Thank you. Okay. Well, now let's hear a little bit about collaboration. And you've seen uh, a whole lot of different environments, uh, some in which people are grateful to be in and some very much not so grateful. Could you share any particularly striking, surprising, counterintuitive discoveries you've made about collaboration from your work and research here for so many years? Absolutely. So when we're talking about collaboration, we're not just talking about run of the mill, throw a team at every problem. We're talking about the term we call smarter collaboration, which is starting with the end in mind and being hyper intentional about how you bring people together. Which particular kinds of experts do you need? When do you need to bring different people in so that they contribute different perspectives that collectively allow the group to be something more innovative, more profitable, more productive, somehow better and tackle more complex issues than any of those people could have done on their own? And what was surprising to me as we've been studying this over the last 10 plus years is how many mistakes people can make with something which is a relatively straightforward process like that. Mm -hmm. One of the big mistakes that people have fallen into recently, sort of a trap, if you will, is the belief that if collaboration is good, more is better. And so what we see is a phenomenon of what we call overcommitment or over-collaboration, that people are joining many, many, many teams or getting drafted onto different projects or being asked to join the committee or the task force or the initiative. And people are stretched so thin that converse to the intentions, you know, the intentions were, hey, let's make the most of this great employee we have. But the opposite happens. That person gets stretched so thin that they end up doing fairly similar work, project after project after project, and they don't have the time to engage deeply, and they don't have time to stretch their skills, and they don't have time to really learn and think about how they could improve what they're doing. And they also Mm -hmm. typically don't get great coaching or mentorship along the way. And it's been really surprising to me how common that problem is of overcommitment inside lots of kinds of organizations. The problem of overcommitment that I have seen, felt, heard that <laughs> from my own firsthand experience, as well as that of, of many others I've worked with. I'm curious, what is the fundamental root cause of overcommitment? It just seems like it's almost ubiquitous in terms of professionals have too many emails, too many meetings, too many projects. And it's just, it's a cluster (laughs) in a lot of organizations and a lot of professionals' work lives. So what's behind this and how do we fix it? 
I see two kinds of root causes. And both of them, I should say, stem from really good intentions. And that's why it's oftentimes hard to find a solution for it is because people are trying to do the right thing. So in one scenario, you have the idea that we've got these people who are really great at some specialized area, and we want to make the most of them, both because they want to be challenged and because we as a company are paying a lot of money for this specialist. And so let's really make sure we deploy them where they can make the most impact. That's the intention. But As the person's reputation grows inside the organization, more and more people want a piece of that thing, right? So they're like, oh, let me go grab Jane for this project. Let me go grab Joe, this expert. And Jane and Joe keep getting tapped again and again and again for all of these different pieces of work. And that's when we run into that problem of overcommitment. But again, it stems from good intentions. Let's make the most of their skills. The other scenario is maybe even more pernicious. There is a very strong, credible, research-backed reason to believe that when teams comprise people with very different kinds of backgrounds and life experiences and cultures and a whole variety of different categories of diversity, that that team has the potential to outperform. Very true. Potential. But Oftentimes, what that means is that people who fall into particular categories, if you will, inside organizations that are underrepresented, the demand for them exceeds the supply. And, you know, for those individuals, I mean, think about it in gender terms. This is happening in a lot of corporate boardrooms right now. (laughs) Hey, you're a woman. You get on our board, too. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Just like that. Okay. Absolutely. And they're all looking for the same women, right? Oh, well, we need a woman who was the CFO of a Fortune 500 company who has this kind of background and this number of years of experience. And guess what? There just aren't that many of that particular kind of person. And those individuals end up getting tapped again and again, in this case for corporate boards or inside organizations. You know, I work with, for example, a lot of professional service firms. There just aren't, empirically speaking, that many Black women partners in professional service firms. And everyone wants their perspective and their wisdom and their experiences on their teams. And so those individuals are just pulled in so many directions, both in the case of professional services on client-facing teams, but also on internal initiatives like hiring and recruiting and employee engagement and diversity and inclusion committees and all of these places. And this is the second way that people get overtapped and overcommitted. Mm-hmm. And in both of those scenarios, managers and leaders with good intentions need to take a step back and look at the system. It's not a set of individual choices. It's a whole bunch of choices that systemically, collectively add up to trouble. And what we recommend, you ask for some solutions. First of all, and I'll probably one I'll keep coming back to in the course of our conversation is get the data right? There's data that exists somewhere at some level in every company or organization that shows what people are working on and how many different ways and directions that they're pulled. And there needs to be a person or a department, depending on how big the organization is, that keeps an eye out for this problem of overcommitment. We studied it in a biotech company, for example. They asked us to come in because they had dropped a major ball and 
figured out way too late that some of their best scientists were pulled in a thousand different directions. And when something really went wrong in one project, there was nobody to cover it. Right. So this biotech asked us to come in. We took a look at the data and we started by asking them, how many projects does every you know, scientist like this one work on? And they said, oh, probably two or three. And they were right to some degree. Most people worked on two or three projects at once. But when we ran the numbers, we found that there were some people working on seven, eight, even 11 projects at once. Mm-hmm. And those people who were most overstretched also happened to be relatively new joiners. And so they didn't know that that wasn't normal, a normal workload. And even if they suspected it wasn't, they were trying to make a good impression in their first months or year at the company. And they didn't raise their hand and notify anyone that they were just way too overstretched. And so one of the solutions is collect the data and figure it out empirically what's happening. Now, you said took a look at the data and ran the numbers. When you say collect the data, that's kind of what I'm I'm curious about is how robust is the tracking and recording of this thing in organizations? In, In my experience, the answer is not very. So you kind of have to go build that from the ground up or... I mean, I have seen some pretty cool enterprise-wide systems that capture that stuff, although sometimes they're gamed and being accurately reported. So, yeah, when you say, we talk about the data and the numbers, I just want to get your sense for what are the, the systems and platforms by which that is readily obtained versus how are you building it from the ground up? So the best data, I think, is not reported for this purpose, because you're right. It's either garbage data. People don't get around to doing it. So at the end of the month, they kind of make a guess. Oh, my timesheet. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Or they game the system for whatever purposes they think Mm -hmm. works best for them. So don't collect data specifically for this purpose. Besides, it's just one more admin thing that nobody wants to do. But there is a wealth of data inside many organizations that's collected for other purposes that can be mined for these sorts of insights. Mm. So the obvious one is in professional service firms or other kinds of sales or project-based organizations. There are actually ways to track, say, on distribution lists or who's submitting to certain expense codes or who's billing their time to certain files. There's lots of data sources that are hidden in other kinds of repositories that can be mined for this. Mm -hmm. In the biotech company, for example, they have to file a lot of paperwork for grant applications and compliance reasons. And those were actually brilliant project rosters. And so if you're creative, you can take a look inside databases that are capturing data for other purposes and figure out who's working on how many different things. Again, expense codes are a great one. Another way to do it, though, is through a whole variety of platforms now that capture essentially network clusters inside firms. And Mm -hmm. so you can see, you have to make some inferences, but you can see that if there are the same eight people emailing each other with similar subject matter, et cetera, or the same people in certain Teams groups, in Microsoft Teams, or you can mine calendars for the kinds of meetings that people co-attend. And it's used de-identified data so that you're not actually snooping in what Joe or Jane is specifically doing, but you're looking at patterns. And the patterns are more important than any single individual. Mm -hmm. That's clever. I like it. 
whether it's from the emails or from the calendars or from the expense codes, even if no one is judiciously, carefully tracking where each hour of their day is gone, you can see what's that involvement looking like and, and where and zero in on some, some stuff. So that's a fun project on the, I guess, enterprise-wide scale. I am curious about individuals, if we're zooming into individuals and teams, what are some of the top do's and don'ts you recommend they can start right away in terms of getting better collaboration? So team leaders are ultimately responsible for the health and well-being and outputs of the group. And so it starts with the team leader, first of all, getting some clarity on the degree to which each team member is already committed to other pieces of work. And perhaps even before composing the team, seeking out individuals who are not the usual suspects. Because if I need to think about Project X, my mind will jump to certain people who have a reputation for doing that kind of project well, or a piece of it. Well, what if I went to that person and instead of asking them to join my team, asked them for a recommendation of somebody whose competence they could vouch for, who isn't quite as busy as they are. Now, this hinges on people knowing the skills and equality levels of their colleagues, but especially on their willingness to let somebody else take their quote-unquote spot, right? And this falls to top leadership to make it a priority that says busier is not better, doing quality work is better, right? But if there's that kind of culture where people are willing to make referrals, the team leader should be asking not always the usual suspect, but perhaps approaching that person with a strong reputation and, and asking for a referral to somebody else, maybe an up-and-comer, maybe somebody who's newer to the organization, maybe somebody for whatever reason doesn't have as widespread of a reputation, but is still fully capable of doing the job. So get the right people on the team. Make sure once you get the team together that you understand not only how many other pieces are they working on, but at a pretty granular level where are we going to have some friction in the calendar? I mean, this sounds like project management 101, but it's astonishing how often this piece gets skipped. Mm -hmm. Okay. And once the leaders of the team understand that particular team members are going to be under really severe pressure at certain points, then it's a question of rerouting the work, of approaching other leaders of teams and asking for some some flexibility. It's not leaving it up to the individual. And I think that's a big problem in many teams is that individual members feel like they either just need to suck it up and deal with it, or they'll be perceived as not capable or strong, or that it's up to them to work the politics and figure out whose project to prioritize. And that shouldn't be the job of those individual team members. That should be something that the leader takes on his or her shoulders. And so there's an awareness there. There is a willingness to intervene when necessary. And I think, you know, everyone in the organization has to create the context where people feel comfortable raising their hand and saying, I'm overstretched. I'm not unwilling to do hard work and lots of work. But right now, the degree to which I'm spread across taking those that hard work and spreading it across too many different initiatives is unproductive. And that's what we need people to identify. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, bringing some of these bits together, could you share with us a fun story or two of a team or organization that was having some disappointing collaboration and then what they did to change things up and, and the cool results they gained from doing so? 
So there's a great experience I had working with the executive team of a huge global electronics manufacturer. And we were asked to work with them because they were really struggling on innovation as a company and leading innovation as this executive team. So my team and I worked with 35 top executives. They were the senior president of a certain division or of a geographic area or of a product line or chief level officers of functions. And with them, we conducted a psychometric profile. So we've developed this tool, this online tool, which allows people in just 10 minutes or so to complete a bunch of questions. And it provides them with real insight about their natural tendencies. All else equal, what kinds of problems are they drawn to? All else equal, how do they prefer to operate in a group or individually? Are they risk seekers or risk spotters? And you might think, oh, we all know this, but actually we tend to have some blind spots. And so what we did with this group from the electronics company is we gave them all this profile, the Smart Collaboration Accelerator, And first, we shared with each individual where they came out. Then what we did was we analyzed the group, all 35 of them, to see what their collective profiles were. And it turned out that 33 of the 35 were extreme risk seekers. In other words, they were motivated not to miss a single opportunity. But there were two people on their team who were risk spotters. They were the kinds of people who weren't motivated to take opportunities, they were motivated not to fail, not to make mistakes, not to have anything blow up. And when we revealed with this data to, I mean, these were mostly kind of engineers and very quantitative people. And when we could put the numbers in front of them that said, just on that one dimension, here's what you look like as a group. There was a bit of nervous laughter. And then the, haha, do you think that's why the regulators are crawling all over us and so forth? And then one guy raised his hand. We were in a virtual meeting. He raised his hands on Zoom. And he said, you never effing listen to me. He's like, I'm that risk spotter. And I keep telling you that we have these problems that are coming up and nobody ever pays attention. And his colleagues said, they kind of laughed and they said, yeah, you know, we hate listening to you. You're such a downer. And so, but it revealed two things to them. First, it revealed to them that They were, in fact, incredibly biased on that dimension and that they were steamrollering the outlier rather than making the most of the diversity in that team. These two individuals who could have helped highlight some real problems before they emerged and blew up, they were majority ruling and basically going with what everyone else who were these risk seekers decided was better for the company. Mm-hmm. And through this conversation, it was like, well, all right, we need to make the most of the diversity on the team. Even when you don't like to hear it, they're probably telling you something really important. And oh, by the way, if you're one of those risk spotters, you probably need to learn to raise issues in ways that those people can understand what you're talking about. You're not just shooting down every idea. But what was powerful as well is that the group then realized that because they were so similar on multiple dimensions, There was something really flawed in the organizational processes that meant you kind of had to be one of these cowboys in order to make it onto Exco. And they looked back at uh, all of the succession planning and everyone coming through the ranks, and they figured out that they were more or less weeding out people who didn't fit the mold. At 
most rungs of the organization. And it was a very powerful experience for them. Again, once they had the data in front of them, they could visually see how skewed they were in certain behavioral terms, that it wasn't productive for them and actually signaled more root cause problems throughout a lot of their systems and processes. That's powerful. And and a pattern I think we see quite often, I'm thinking about administering the Myers-Briggs type indicator to many groups. And it's almost like folks are closeted. (laughs) It's like, yeah, I'm a secretly an introvert, but it doesn't feel like that really works here. So I put on my, my extrovert hat around the sales and marketing deal makery people and, and do that. Or I prefer sensing and in terms of like getting out to the real facts of things, as opposed to always imagining these cool possibilities and ideas. And I get called a wet blanket and such. Exactly. And what we have worked with groups on, and this can be you know, corporate boards that are a dozen people, it can be bigger functions and departments and business units. What we can do when we help people understand their own natural tendencies is to figure out how to use those as a strength, right? How do you bring your voice into the room, especially if you're the outlier, but in any case, how do you interact with other people? How do you raise concerns? How do you spot opportunities? How do you engage with people and keep them motivated in ways that are really authentic to you? Because I think that is a problem where oftentimes people feel that they have to fit in. They have to mirror somebody else who's already successful there. And they, of course, are facing a huge burden then because by not being able to be themselves, it's really quite painful and draining. But the organization loses out. I mean, there's huge amounts of research showing that when you have people who are genuinely different from one another and can play to their unique strengths, they're more innovative. They're more likely to spot both problems and opportunities. They're better able to customize and tailor solutions to complex problems. And so that feeling of needing to fit in, whether it's how you look and dress and sound or what kinds of problems you're attracted to, not being able to foster diversity and true inclusion in terms of bringing those people's diverse efforts into the room and valuing them, that's a, a real process loss for a lot of organizations. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. Well said. Well, tell me any key things, Heidi, you want to make sure to mention in terms of top do's and don'ts for collaboration before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Well, one of the most important things I think when an organization is embarking on this journey of smarter collaboration, they say, okay, I get it. We need to really leverage all of the different perspectives we've got. We need to break down some of the barriers and the silos inside this organization. How do we get started? And we have done research with well over 10,000 senior people across organizations around the planet. And we know there's five, six, maybe seven common barriers that come up uh, from one place to the next. But what's unique is, or not unique probably because there's not an infinite combination, but what's different for each organization is the prevalence and the importance of those barriers. And so, for example, one of the barriers is competence trust, right? If I'm going to bring you into my special cherished project, I have to believe in your competence. I have to think you deliver high quality, on time, on budget. You're actually really good at what you do, but it's not enough. Another kind of trust is essential. That's interpersonal trust. Even if I think you're a guru, but if I think you're a jerk, 
I'm still not going to work with you. Right. And so we know that interpersonal trust or lack of it or lack of confidence, trust, those spring up in most organizations. But depending which one really matters, which one is really standing in the way of people working across silos, that is the the factor that needs to determine what course of action you take. Because if you're trying to generate greater competence trust amongst employees, you're going to go down a path of maybe learning and development and helping people establish some curiosity in what other people do and helping people hone their elevator pitch so when they're talking to somebody, they can describe in compelling ways how they add value to problem solving or whatever. But if you need to fix interpersonal trust, you need to go down a completely different route. And so the point of this is anyone looking to improve smarter collaboration in their organization, they have to start with a data-based diagnostic. They have to have some objective way of figuring out what stands in between them and really effective collaboration, and then make sure that the solutions they're developing are tailored to those problems. Because all too often, we have worked with leaders who say, I know exactly what's wrong here. And actually, most leaders are pretty biased in their views of what goes on inside the organization. Nobody refuses to collaborate with the CEO, go figure, right? So they don't see that it's a major problem (laughs) and they don't understand how their position of authority and a whole lot of other things actually skews their perception of what stands in the way for average person inside the organization. So I would say find ways. We have a toolkit coming out. We codified a methodology to do this after five or six years of doing it ourselves. We've now created a toolkit that will be published by Harvard Business Press as a companion to our book where people can use this methodology. We tell people in a very step-by-step kind of way, how do you collect the data? How do you analyze it? How do you draw uh, conclusions from it? How do you present it back to executives? And what do you do about it? And I'm hoping that that's what people use in order to really create and craft a collaborative solution that will drive the kinds of outcomes that we know are advantages of smarter collaboration. All right. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? My favorite quote is the one that we use as the dedication in our new book. We've dedicated the book to our daughters, Zoe and Anya, and all the smarter collaborators of their generation. And the quote we use is, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And that quote really resonates for us in this rush, rush world we're in. Sometimes we feel like taking shortcuts and it's going to be just better if I crack on and do it myself. And that works some of the time. But if what you really need is a great solution, if you really want to go far, finding ways to engage in smarter collaboration is absolutely essential. Mm -hmm. And a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? One of my most recent favorite studies was done by Dr. Randall Peterson, who's a professor at London Business School. He engaged in a very ambitious study of corporate boards. And so these individuals, board chairs and independent directors, participated in his research and went through this rigorous methodology where they helped him understand very objective ways what were the dynamics inside the board. For example, He found that boards that are truly inclusive of women have much better and very different styles of problem solving and conflict resolution. So, for example, boards that are very male dominated tend to vote 
and to cut short discussion and majority rules. And it stamps out dissent and curtails the discussion of unpopular options or opinions. Whereas boards that are more inclusive of women tend to talk things through in a more substantive and holistic way. And fascinating discovery is that boards, therefore, with more women on them and where women's opinions and contributions were more valued, actually were linked to significantly less shareholder dissent. Now, shareholder dissent is something that every corporate board cares about because if their shareholders are creating a formal action saying that they don't have faith in the way that the board has operated, that's hugely problematic for governance. And Dr. Peterson's research was able to link the way the boards interacted with the gender composition with that very important outcome. And it was a first, not only in the corporate board space, but also in helping us understand why it is that gender inclusion is so powerful. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? I'm going to go way back to a book that was incredibly eye-opening for me. It was called The Russians by Hedrick Smith. And I read this book when I was 15 or 16 years old. And so that was in the mid-80s, and it was the height of the Cold War. And I had only ever thought about the Russians as a block of people, the commies, right? The, the bad guys. They were featured in all of the movies as the one that Rocky wanted to pummel or the idea that the U.S. hockey team had to beat the Russians. And I read this book as part of a summer program that I was about to attend, and it opened my eyes to the idea that the Russians weren't a monolithic block. They were humans, just like all of us Americans. And although it's incredibly simplistic conclusion, for me, having grown up in Amish country in Pennsylvania, where it was not the most open society or community, and we looked at anybody who was foreigner with a a fair degree of suspicion, humanizing the quote-unquote enemy was incredibly powerful. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. Okay. And can you share with us a favorite tool, something you used to be awesome at your job? Well, I have to go back to the Smart Collaboration Accelerator. It's not just because we developed it. It's the psychometric tool that's science-backed, and it has helped so many organizations and teams and leaders fulfill their potential. It's incredibly powerful. And we've now got 150 people around the world accredited coaches and professional facilitators and consultants who are trained up in using it. And we are bringing the power of those improved dynamics and self-awareness to create smarter collaborators in a whole range of industries and generations. Mm -hmm. And a favorite habit? It's hardly novel, but exercise is my favorite habit, particularly walking. And I walk as much as I can, even conduct most of my internal meetings and some of my external ones from my treadmill. There's a fair amount of good research that suggests that walking helps to stabilize some of the the rhythms in the brain. There's a great deal of research that shows that walking is related to expansive thinking. And I didn't know the research when I got so into walking, but started holding walking meetings with colleagues and with family members and with a whole variety of people where we would try to hash through different kinds of ideas and 
Now, when I get to a new place, walking is the first thing that I try to do. And if I am stuck on a problem, I get on the treadmill. Okay. And is there a key nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? They quote it back to you often. One nugget that came out of our research, we did uh, a study of how smarter collaboration benefits individuals. And initially, it looked as if people who had bigger networks were better off. And as we dug further, we realized that bigger isn't better, better is better. And we can now quantify what it takes to make a better network in smarter collaboration terms. And it means accessing a variety of different kinds of not only experts, but people who think really differently about problems and about solutions. And it also means keeping ties open, at least to a small degree, so that you don't need to be constantly in touch with people. They don't need to be your best friends in order to contribute a brilliant idea, but they do need to be just warm enough that if you ring them up or drop them an email or however people communicate, that they're going to respond and they're going to help you solve that problem. And they're going to give you their own nugget that will help you break through. And that idea that people don't need big networks. Introverts make brilliant, high quality networks and they don't need to be the life of the party. So the idea is better is better when it comes to forming a network and the diversity is really key there. Okay. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Our website is gardnerandco.co. And we have all of our studies and our books up there. And speaking of books, our new one, Smarter Collaboration, has just come out. And we'd encourage people to take a look at that as well. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? I want people to take a few minutes every week and just reflect on whether anything has surprised them. This is a question I ask my executive participants in programs at Harvard, both I teach at the business school and the law school at Harvard. And usually by, you know, sort of day three or four of a program, I asked, what surprised you about being here on this program? And often people are stumped, but then the ideas start to flow. And what we realize is asking about surprises forces people to confront what they had taken for granted or what they had expected. And I encourage people to stop every week at some point and just look around and say, what has surprised me in the last few days? Because that will challenge us to think about what we do take for granted, what we had expected to happen, and it will raise our antenna up to being more curious about the world. It will prompt us to ask better questions or engage in conversations that might take us to places that we weren't open to hearing before, or we might tune into a different podcast or a different news station or news source that we would otherwise. And if we seek out surprises, I think it really opens our mind. That would be the challenge I'd offer up to people. All right. Well, Heidi, this has been a treat. I wish you much luck and fun collaborations. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. I really appreciated Heidi's take that more collaboration is not always optimal and that can be a driver of overcommitment. So just check in and make sure, hmm, whose input do we really need? And is my input really needed? And to make sure we got the right people in the right places and not too many people in too many places creating too many projects and too much overcommitment and too much insanity and lack of focus. 
Great stuff from Heidi. Again, the show notes, the transcript, and the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP823. Hope to catch you next time. And peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.